prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are most good and most wise. We thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the wonderful psalm sing that we had yesterday evening, the opportunity to sing the psalms, to sing your word um, out at the uh, town square. Uh, we thank you that we have the opportunity to dive back into your word this morning as we uh, examine Christ's role as our great prophet. We pray that we would draw closer to you, Lord, and learn more of, of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, um, you, do you guys have handouts yet or no? Grab them. Okay. <laughs> All right, then in that case, I'll go ahead and just, I'll read the question and uh, I'll read the answer. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways of administration the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. Now, despite all the kind of intricacies of this statement, it has one central message. Can I get a couple of uh, gentlemen to help hand out the uh, handouts, please? Um, There is one central message. Christ executes the office of prophet in his revealing to his church the whole will of God. Okay? The rest of this is really just kind of prepositional phases that are attached onto that. Okay? Attached onto this core statement. Um, He does this in all ages, by his spirit, for our sanctification. Okay? Now, these happen to be very important prepositional phrases. Okay? And we're going to discuss them. But the fact remains that the way Christ executes his role as a prophet is to reveal the whole will of God. Okay? And this is where I actually want us to start. I, I know it's kind of the middle of the answer, um, but that, like I said, that's really the core point. Okay? The idea that a prophet reveals the whole will of God. Now, I want us to look closely at two particular examples of this. And keep in mind, both of these words in the answer here... Um, are important. A prophet must reveal the will of God, and he must reveal the whole will of God. To lack one or the other is to be a false prophet. So our first example, first up is Adam. Paul tells us in multiple places, right, that Christ comes as the second Adam, during, uh, doing perfectly what the first Adam did not, which means that, obviously, in some respects, right, Adam functioned as a prophet in the garden. And if you think way back, right, to when we studied covenant, covenant of works, this shouldn't be too foreign to any of you. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, right, and they're being tempted by the snake, and what what does he do? What does the devil do? Well, he gets mankind to fall into sin by attacking God's word and his character, Right, starting in verse 1, Genesis 3, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And what was Eve's response? Verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And of course, the devil retorts with, no, you won't die. Right? Actually, you're going to become like God. Right Now, Eve was in sin because she was speaking falsely, right? Even more so because she was speaking falsely against God. 
And then, of course, she eats the fruit. And the devil, right, he's just sinning all over the place. But what about Adam? Okay. I mean, we all, we all know Adam was there. All right. More specifically, what about Adam as the patriarch of his home? Okay. Specifically, what should Adam have done exercising his role as a prophet? Okay. Well, first, he should have looked at the devil right, and said, number one, do not speak falsely against the Lord. Okay. Secondly, no, God did not say we shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Okay, in fact, God said, if you, if you want to read, it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then lastly, right, as a patriarch of his home, he should have looked at him and said, keep your blasphemous lies away from my wife. Right? Then, after disposing of the snake, priestly and kingly roles, he should have turned to his wife and gently and lovingly corrected her. Right? As a prophet of the Lord, as the head of his home, Adam should have reminded Eve of two things. Okay? Number one, God did not necessarily forbid that they not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, which is what she said. If you remember, Genesis 2.9 says God put two trees in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Adam and Eve were permitted to eat from the tree of life up until the fall. But Eve says, the tree in the middle, yeah, we can't eat that. Well, that's not actually what God said. Now, we all know what tree she's talking about, right? But I would argue that when you are being tempted with sin, especially by the devil himself, you need to know the word of the Lord as best you can. It needs to be clear in your mind, lest you fall and stumble like our first parents. Now, you may think I'm just splitting hairs here, okay? But let me give you another example, okay? Everyone always says money's the root of all evil. <clears throat> but that's not actually what the scriptures say. 1 Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Teaching people that money is evil is false, okay? Loving money and what you do with your money can certainly be sinful and evil. In fact, the rest of the text says in 1 Timothy 6, this is verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So going back to Genesis, right? Suppose Adam disposed of the devil, right? He did what he was supposed to do, but he never corrected Eve on this particular point. And she continued to teach this same message, right? To her kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, generations down the line, right? God's word could quickly become as warped as 1 Timothy 610. And future generations may not end up eating of the tree of life. All because Adam did not properly exercise his role as a prophet. Now, I realize this is all just hypothetical, okay? Hypothetical scenarios, but I want you to see the importance of this role and how Adam failed in revealing, as our answer states, the will of God, okay? But there's a second comment that his wife made that he should have corrected. As followers of God, we do not add or subtract from God's word. 
In Eve's statement to the devil, she stated that God said that they could not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, as a matter of fact, God did not say that. All he said was, don't eat it. Now, personally, I think that happens to be a good idea. I probably wouldn't make it a, a habit of touching fruit that could kill me, okay? Especially one the Lord specifically told me, don't eat, okay? But that's just me. But the point is, the role of the prophet is to show that God's word is sufficient. We do not add to it, nor do we subtract from it. This is what Adam was meant to demonstrate to his wife in this comment. Okay, because remember, it's not just the will of God he was meant to reveal, but the whole will of God. Now, let's look at our second example. What happens when Jesus is put in this same situation? Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4. <clears throat> Start in verse 9. And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the devil brings Jesus up to the temple, right, and he tempts him using God's word, of all things, as if he will know God's word better than God himself. But the devil, he gives it the good old college try, right? And he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. Now, the problem is not that he actually misquotes the text like Eve did. The problem is that he tries to misapply and manipulate the text. If you actually flip back and read Psalm 91 there, he quotes it the right way. But the text does not mean that a person should force God to protect them. And that's actually exactly what Jesus says. Right? Luke 4, verse 12. It is stated, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So not only does Jesus correct the devil, but he does it using God's word. Here and all throughout these temptations, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy back at the devil. Right? By quoting scripture back to Satan, Jesus does two things in his role as a prophet that I want you to notice. Number one, he demonstrates the centrality of God's word in defeating Satan and the temptation to sin. Do, do I need to point out how applicable that is for us? Right? The more scripture you know and the more grounded you are in, you, in the word, the less susceptible you will be to giving into sin. But secondly, <clears throat> what Jesus does, a true prophet of the Lord, he doesn't just know scripture. Right? He doesn't just know the words. He understands the meaning and the application of it. Imagine if Jesus had said, wow, you know what? It does say that. You're right. And he jumped. No. Now, now a spectacular display of jumping from this height and unharmed, because the angels would have done just that, right, would have earned Jesus quite the reputation and following. But it would not have followed the Father's messianic and redemptive plan of suffering and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Instead, Jesus does exactly what he's supposed to do. He reveals the whole will of God. And not just in word only, but in, his, in the meaning of it as well. 
He knows the text. He knows God's word, obviously, because he is God, right? He understands what it means. He knows how to apply it. And he desires the same for us, his people, as well. Listen to John 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. As beloved children of God, Jesus wants us to know God's will. He wants us to know the depths and the truths of his word. He wants us to be able to apply the word of God in our lives. And he doesn't just want us to know some of it, right? He says, all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. We have everything we need to know about God in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus as the most excellent prophet who takes the perfect knowledge, will, counsel, teachings of the Lord, of his Father, and he speaks them to us. He shares them with his friends. And this passage of Scripture here in John 15 is an excellent pivot point to start looking at the specifics of our catechism here uh, in the answer because they're going to give us the, the how, the where, the when, the what, all, all that good stuff. And the first up is, is the who here. <clears throat> and it's his church. The catechism says that Christ reveals the whole will of God to his church. This is the church that Christ has bought and paid for with his blood. Right? This is his bride that he has made white as snow, gone back to prepare a room for in his kingdom. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the first verse there in the prologue, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning of the word, and I'm sorry, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And we looked at what that means, right, for Jesus to be the word. It tells us that Jesus is, is the communication between God and man, right? He, in a sense, exegetes God to us. Going back to cre the uh, creation account, he's the one who speaks things into existence. We see Christ's pre-existence and, and divinity here. <clears throat> but take a look at the end of the prologue there, in verse 18. The last verse, and by the way, this is our proof text for this section here. John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, let's break this down for a second. Because we got a lot of, of gods and he's and, and, and we need to know who, who we're referring to here. So, no one has ever seen God. That is meant to mean in a, in a full and complete way. Okay? In fact, uh, Deacon Butler and I, Casey and I were talking about this last week, about theophanies in the Old Testament. Right? Did they actually see Christ. Well, <clears throat> some people did see a partial revelation of God in the scriptures, yes. But as we read here, no one has ever seen God fully manifested until the incarnation of the Son of God, until Jesus the Christ comes. Okay? And this God is in reference to the Father, okay? Because the only one who can make known the Father is the Son. In fact, John mentions this in, in, uh, later in chapter 6. He says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Now, <clears throat> John 1.18, it goes on to say, The only God, okay, this simply means unique, 
one of a kind. Okay, it's the same Greek word uh, for only that he uses back in verse fourteen. Okay, so let's let's kind of put this together. What we've got here: no one has ever seen God, the Father, in a in a full and complete way. This unique or one of a kind Son of God, who is at the Father's side. He is he the Son has made him the Father known. Is everyone, is everyone tracking on that? Okay. So John here very clearly kind of bookends the prologue by emphasizing what he did in verse 1. Jesus as the Word is God. And he has revealed and explained God to humanity. In other words, Jesus fulfills his role as prophet. He has come in the flesh tabernacled among us, right, and made known his Father, the one true God that that no one has ever seen. He has revealed and explained God to humanity. Now, in one sense, yes, Christ as prophet shares the word and the the whole counsel of God with all people, right? In the same way that we might say we have the, the, the free offer of the gospel, right? We speak the truth to all men. But our catechism is is specific, and we need to be as well. Christ executes the role of a prophet for the church. He came to fulfill this role for his people, his bride, his church. This is who he came to save, to live, to die for. This is who receives the whole counsel of God, the whole will of God. And we will see this a bit more when we look at the the supremacy of Scripture a little bit later on. And keep in mind as well that Paul tells us that the church, Ephesians 2.20, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ, Jesus among him being the chief cornerstone, right? The church does not exist without the prophets, Christ being chief among them. Now, exactly what prophets is Paul talking about here? Well, the answer to this actually helps us tie nicely into the next part of the answer. In all ages by his spirit and word in divers' ways. <clears throat> so this is kind of the when and how aspect. So when, uh, when does Christ execute the office of a prophet? In all ages. How does he do it? By his spirit and word. And in diverse ways, or many ways, that's what divers means, um, ways of administration. And these three ideas kind of run together. You'll see what I mean here shortly. Let's start uh, this section with some scripture, and this, this passage here is going to kind of be our bedrock for this, this whole section. This is Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, verse 1 there pretty much hit every one of our three points. I don't know if you caught it. Long ago and at many times, so in all ages, right? And in many ways, so that's in diverse ways of administration, and then God spoke. So he gave us his word. Christ executed the role of a prophet. And how did he do that? Well, our text says by the Old Testament prophets, and then later he does it through his son, Jesus. And today, that actually looks a bit different um, than even these two previous time periods. So let's just kind of walk through 
this, these, these portions of redemptive history. We'll start with the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament prophets certainly had authorization to speak for God. In fact, what they said and wrote was the very word of God. And point of clarification here, little tangent, um, regarding the matter of Scripture. Just because we're, we're talking about the prophets, and this is usually where this question comes up, uh, there's, there's two ways of kind of understanding the Scriptures. you got what's called the mechanical dictation theory and the verbal plenary theory. Okay, That's your big... Theological jargon. Okay? Now, when people hear the Bible was physically written by men, uh, they usually kind of automatically think mechanical dictation theory. Okay? Here's what that doesn't mean. God whispered into the ears of certain men, and he used them as kind of human stenographers. Okay? <clears throat> they just sat there passively while God kind of pulled the, the puppet strings. <clears throat> And he, he did that just to make sure there was no errors. Okay? No, that's not how we understand the scriptures. Now, there are elements of scripture that do fall into this certain dictation theory category. Okay? When you see phrases like, thus says the Lord, and then you get the quotation marks, okay? um, that's, that's, that's a statement directly, word for word, from God. Okay? Um, and that's actually really prevalent in the prophets. That's why I wanted to talk about this. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah is a good example. We read in Jeremiah 26, this is verses 1 and 2. This word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, quote, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. So, not only do we get the thus says the Lord, right, but God also says don't hold back a word. So I'm going to tell you exactly what to say. And I want you to say it verbatim, right? And as a faithful prophet, Jeremiah is going to say everything that God says. This is a biblical understanding of the mechanical dictation theory. Now, the other term that I mentioned, right, the, the verbal plenary theory, is the, the, the fancy theological way of, of, of saying what we all already know and believe, right? That 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice something important here. It's not the human authors who are inspired. It's the actual scripture itself. Okay? And that's an important point. No biblical prophecy was ever produced through man merely because they wanted to be a prophet. Okay? Because, just because they wanted to prophesy. The prophecy was given only by God through men who spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit was the active revelatory agent working inside the Old Testament prophets, uh, prophets through their lives, through their circumstances. Okay, and I, I, I can't stop that point enough, right? It's the scripture that's inspired, right, by the Holy Spirit, not the men themselves. Okay, yet at the same time, God is able to use these men, right, to speak these inspired words, Right, through their own personalities, through their knowledge, through their backgrounds, through their vocabulary, their language, all these kinds of things. Right? The Holy Spirit was able to carry them along or inspire the scriptures without overriding any of their personalities or any of these other things. Okay? And Paul makes the same point as, as Peter in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Okay? 
All right, that's my little tangent on Scripture. <clears throat> All that to say, the Old Testament prophets spoke using both of these methods, the mechanical theory and the verbal theory, okay? But in neither case could they have said or written God's word by their own power. It was the Spirit of Christ that spoke through them. Uh, flip real quick to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> All right, start in verse 10. First Peter 1, beginning verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that you have now been announced, I'm sorry, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. <clears throat> so notice, Peter says in verse 10 that we're talking about the prophets, right? That would be the Old Testament prophets. They had, verse 11 says, the Spirit of Christ in them. To predict what? The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, <clears throat> the Old Testament prophets didn't see necessarily or understand clearly when their prophecies would be realized, but they did foretell that Christ would suffer and be glorified. Okay? And they were serving who? Verse 12. You. Us. The church. Which we've already mentioned. Right? Now remember, I want to make a little caveat here. A prophet is one who reveals the whole will of God. That's what we started with, right? A prophet is not a fortune teller. I think some of us may kind of tend to think that way, okay? but that's, that's not the case. In fact, many of the prophecies in the Old Testament were for their own times. Okay? A prophet is someone who brings the whole will of God. That is what a prophet is and does, okay? Sometimes that will is for a future event, okay, or, or to fulfill a promise of God. <clears throat> but again, that does not make prophets fortune tellers, okay? So, this is how Christ executes the office of prophet in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Because now, at this point, the incarnate Son of God has entered the world, okay, and the Christ, the Messiah, has begun his ministry. Or as verse 2 from our previous Hebrew passage says, right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The revelation of God's word has come to its completion in Jesus Christ. He is the prophet that was promised by God in the Old Testament. And as, as Paul says in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, just real quick, why is it important that we study this? Why is it important that we know this, believe this stuff? Why do we need to believe that Jesus executes the office of prophet? He's come. Why do we even need to know this? That he's the source of, of truth and brings the whole will of God to his people? Well, actually, 
Paul answers that very question in the next verse of Colossians. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We must be certain in the prophetic office of Christ because in this office, Christ is the embodiment of divine wisdom, truth incarnate, the will, the whole will of God spoken to us. The devil will try to delude you with some pretty convincing arguments. Don't let the devil or other people delude you with fancy words. Okay, because they do sound good. That's why Paul calls them plausible arguments in verse 4. They sound possible. They sound like they might have some merit to them. Satan loves to lace his arguments with elements of truth. That's why they sound plausible and they delude people. But when we understand who is truth, who actually speaks the whole will of God, these plausible arguments, they fall flat. And we're going we're to actually look at a couple of these plausible arguments when we talk about um, <clears throat> some of the other false religions out there. But for now, what are some of the ways that Jesus executes this office during his earthly ministry? Well, number one, he preaches to large crowds of people, right? Jews and Gentiles. All manner of people are hearing the word of God preached. He's talking to everybody. Number two, he's preaching and teaching to his own followers or his disciples, right? People that are are hearing and repenting and believing in him. Number three, narrowing down even further, right? He's training and instructing his 12 disciples, those that are going to be crucial in being official witnesses after his dissension and carrying on the church in the ministry of Christ. Now, fast forward in time a little bit. Christ has ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. What are we left with? Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Verse 8. Verse 8. Ephesians 4, 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Great. Great, he gave gifts. What are these gifts? Down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Christ gives gifts to his people as the divine victor. When he ascends, he triumphs, and he gives his people the spoils of his victory. And these gifts, as it turns out, are church leaders. Now, let's talk briefly about the apostles and the prophets. I I don't want this to turn into a lecture on cessationism, but we should mention it. This is a special time in redemptive history. Okay, it's the apostolic period, a time where scripture was still being written, okay, and special offices are still in place. There were special requirements for those offices, right? For example, to be an apostle, you had to be specifically called by Christ, right? I got a host of, of texts here that can prove that, right? You have to have seen Jesus resurrected. Again, host of scriptures that can prove that. So it suffices to say, there are no more apostles today, okay? Now, when it comes to New Testament prophets, like apostles, right? They deliver divinely revealed authoritative teaching. 
But once God spoke through his son, those whom he appointed as apostles, the office of prophet and apostle ended. I like uh, Jerry Williamson. He summarized this matter well. Listen to this quote. It's a little long, but it's, it's good. <clears throat> it is true, of course, that we read of prophets in the apostolic period, but they were only to fill the gap, as it were, until the New Testament had been written. While it was being written, they were able to supply inspired instruction, which we now have in the Bible. Thus, it is a mark of the finished work of Christ that there is no prophet or apostle in the church today. There could be prophets and apostles only so long as God's complete word had not been given. The prophets foretold what Christ would do. The apostles recorded what Christ did do. So, this is why, for example, the Roman Catholic Church is so dangerous and heretical. As many of you probably know, Rome teaches the doctrine of apostolic secession. <clears throat> they turn to Matthew chapter 16, right, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? And they say, see, right there, Peter, he was the first pope. And he holds the keys to the kingdom. Very next verse. Right? And since Peter, as an apostle, has the authority to speak for God and, you, and his word, all of his successors do as well. And so when the pope speaks, quote, ex cathedra, meaning from the chair, it means he's speaking from the chair of Peter. In other words, he's speaking in an official capacity and without error. He's speaking in the same authority as Scripture. Hopefully it's obvious why this is so wrong. It means that Christ did not complete his divine revelation. Christ was not the final prophet. We do not have a cessation of the apostolic and prophetic offices. The canon of Scripture is not closed. This is one of the clearest ways Rome shows her apostasy. But Rome isn't the only one. Right? Mormonism lifts up the, the prophet Joseph Smith. Right? Judaism, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, many others. Right? They, they all add something to the Bible as a rule of faith and practice. Okay. That's the apostles and the prophets. But what about the other three from Ephesians 4? Evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Because the historic Orthodox Christian view is that Christ alone is the prophet, final prophet of the church, right? About, and that, I'm sorry, and that he speaks now through the Bible and through his spirit. And we'll talk more about each of those in a minute. But what about these other offices? Just because Christ alone is the prophet, and he is, who delivers God's word to us does not mean that human instruments are useless. Quite the opposite. Put it simply, these three offices are still in effect today, and they're used by God in the church. And that gets to our, our third timeline here, the, the church today. Now, <clears throat> point of clarification here. Um, it's a little bit unclear whether shepherds and teachers uh, in this particular text is referencing two different ministry roles. Um, a case could be made, I think, from the Greek that Paul's ref uh, trying to refer to something like uh, teaching pastors here. So that would be one office. Or it could be two separate offices, um, which is really not a problem either. It would just be understood as the, the, the office of elder, okay? Uh, some, you know, someone responsible for instructing the church in God's word. 
Some, just exactly what he talks about in 1 Timothy 5.17. Okay? So honestly, how, however you want to read it, um, I think it's three offices, but it really doesn't, or three you know, roles here, but it really doesn't matter. <clears throat> the point remains, these offices are a permanent gift of Christ to the church. So what you need to understand is, and this is the biggest takeaway here, I am God's gift to you. That was the punchline. You're supposed to laugh there. Man, it's a tough crowd. Is this on? All right. And Phil is the kind of gift that you wish you could return. But um, it's okay. I could talk about him behind his back because he's not here. It's okay. No, I'm joking. Elder Lovelady and Pastor Miller are excellent elders. Godly men. I'm blessed to serve alongside them. I can only joke about them because of the close bonds we share. Guys, it's fine. In all seriousness, Christ blesses his church by equipping them with godly men uh, to lead them. Right? Evangelists to share the gospel. Plant churches. Right? Shepherds to minister the word. Tend his sheep in those churches. Teachers, elders to assist the minister in the worship. Guard the church against false doctrine. Okay? Now, the responsibility of these offices is not to say something new or come up with, with clever revelation. Our job, 2 Timothy 2.15, is to rightly handle the word of truth. To study, present God's word to you. Right? By the way, that's why you should be very leery about reading or listening to some new and great way of understanding the Scripture. The Scriptures have been rightly interpreted for centuries. We are not smarter than our forebears. It is in the completed Scriptures that we see Christ's prophetic role completed today. Because this is how God speaks to His people today. This is why the author of Hebrews can say, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter's saying that in the Scriptures, we have more surety in the principles of our salvation than anyone in the Old Testament had. Even those who actually heard the very voice of God Again, I, I like what G.I. Williamson says regarding this point. He says, because the Bible is the Word of God written, because it is the complete Word of God, because it is clear and self-interpreting, and because the Holy Spirit has given, I'm sorry, has been given to enable God's elect people to understand the Bible, we are really more fully blessed by Christ's prophetic office than any of God's children in the Old Testament times. And we know this is true because of what Jesus says regarding John the Baptist. Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, wait. What? How can that be possible? What is, what is Jesus saying right here? John was uniquely privileged because he was, he was the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. Yet, we have the greater privilege because we have entered the kingdom in its new covenant reality. We have entered through the blood of Christ. We have assurance. And as a result, every Christian today, even the most humblest, simple Christian, can stand on a higher level of knowledge than even John did. Why? 
Because Christ has revealed the whole will of God to each believer distinctly through His Word and through His Spirit. This is why men like Luther and other great reformers right, were adamant that even the most lay Christians should be able to read their Bible in their own language. Of course, Rome and other scholars disagreed. right? But this didn't stop the reformers from translating the Bible anyway. <clears throat> because through the Word of God, and with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, man might find salvation and repentance of sin. And that's the last point that our answer makes. We read earlier, right, in John 15, that Christ came to make known to us all that he has heard from his Father. Now, does this mean that we know everything God knows? No, of course not, right? The catechism is helpful here because it clarifies that Christ came to make known all things regarding what? Our edification, our sanctification, and salvation. <clears throat> I think it's helpful to turn to the Gospel of, of John here. John is a very evangelistic book, right? Its goal is to drive people to repentance and faith. Anytime I'm talking to somebody who wants to start reading the Bible for the first time, usually almost always start them in John. But at the end of the Gospel, John says, this is chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is saying, Jesus did a, a ton of things, right? A, a lot of things that I didn't even write down here. But the things that I did write down, I wrote down for a purpose. So that you would believe in him, and that you may have life in his name. The purpose of God's word is to equip men with knowledge for salvation. And sanctification. Acts 20, verse 20, or 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We're reminded here that the word of God builds up believers. It teaches the gospel of salvation by grace. And it promises an inheritance for those who belong to God, those who are being sanctified. We must always give supreme respect to our true prophet, Jesus Christ, who speaks to us in the Word of God. We have to pray that the Spirit enables us more and more to understand it rightly. Because the one who is truly blessed is the one who will, I'm sorry, who is able at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in him. And that leads me to our, our final topic, the aspects of the prophet for the common believer. Now, let me say this up front. We do not formally hold this office. Okay, this office belongs to Christ and him alone. <clears throat> that being said, there are elements of this office that apply to us today simply because we are united to Christ by faith. Okay, listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question and answer 32. Question says, but why are you called a Christian? Here's the answer. Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed, one, to confess his name. Two, to present myself to him a living sacrifice of thanks. Three, to strive with a free conscience against sin and evil in this life and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. So hopefully you caught it. But this answer listed the duties of the three offices in this answer. One of the things we are called to do as Christians because we are united to Christ, because we are called Christians, is to confess his name. 
That's, that's the very duty and role of a prophet. <laughs> and, and the others were, if you didn't catch it, right? To present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, that would be the role of a priest. <clears throat> to strive with a free conscience against sin and evil, right? You are to fight sin and evil, that would be the role of a king. And we'll talk about those later on when we get to their respective questions. But what I'm, what I'm driving at here is that although we do not formally hold the office, the role of a prophet, it is the duty of every believer to act like a prophet in that regard because we are united to Christ, to confess his name, to share the gospel, not to be ashamed of the truth of God's word, to proclaim the whole will of God, to fulfill the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And by the way, and this is just kind of a side note, right? This is part and parcel of what it means to keep the second commandment. All right? To rightly bear the name of the Lord. All right. We're not going to go as long as Elder Lovely. That wraps up question 43. Anybody have any questions? Yes. Now, he doesn't do it all the time. Not every time the pope, something comes out of the pope mouth, uh, Pope's mouth, that is Scripture. Um, he only does that sometimes, formally, and he will announce when he's doing that. So when he uh, does, do they write it down and like, record it as if it's inspired Scripture? I would imagine so. I would think so. Yeah, if he's going to speak ex cathedra, that's something that they would note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that would get... Signed, sealed, put in the, the vault. Yeah. <laughs> well, good question. How do they explain, as I understand it, there's a break between along the line of Pope. How do they explain that? To the break? Oh, yeah. So I was going to talk about this, but I didn't know if we'd have time. There was actually a period in church history. I can't remember exactly the names of the popes. But there's a point in history where there were three popes sitting in the chair. <laughs> who was the rightly ordained apostolic successor. I don't know. They don't know. There were so many arguments about it. And, and, and I've heard a lot of very devout Catholics say that that was, the, that was the time when the Catholic Church truly ended because the, they don't know who the true Pope was. So, yeah. What, what, what time period in history was it? Was it the 15th century? Yeah. You had, a, you had a French pope, you had an English pope, and a Spanish pope. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, none of them believed the other one was the true pope. So, we have a lot of them. Yeah, yes. Yeah, quite, yes. Yeah. You, you mentioned one of the requirements of being an apostle was having to see the risen Christ. Mm hmm. Uh, we know Paul is an apostle. Mm hmm. Did he see the risen Christ? On the road to Damascus. That would constitute that, having an interaction with, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you would you constitute that as a theophany, Pastor? I would say, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, no, because that's actually Christ. Right. I mean, that's the incarnate Son of God. So that wouldn't be a. Because if incarnate Christ, that would be. That would be a theophany. Yeah. Good question. I've seen, yeah, and he's, yeah, he does say that. That's true. That's a good point. Because, yeah, his apostleship does get called into question 
multiple times, and he defends it that way. So. Mm -hmm. Good questions. Any more questions? Yeah, I would never refer to somebody that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, suffice it to say, um, those offices and roles have ended. Good discussions, good questions. Any more? Yeah? All right. Let me close this in prayer. Our good and gracious Lord, we thank you that you've sent your Son, your incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ to be our true prophet, that in him all the wisdom and knowledge of God has been manifest, and that you, through your Holy Spirit, have inspired your scriptures, that the canon of scripture is indeed closed, and that you have spoken to us in your word, that you continue to speak to us in that way, and that we need only open the pages of scripture to hear the living God, who has not remained silent, but has spoken to us through his Son, and continues to speak to us through your word and through the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be with us this morning in our fellowship and our worship of you. May it be pleasing in your sight, a pleasant offering to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.